it is one of those shows where if you're sitting there looking at your pocketbook and there's a few less dollars or next time you tap, all of a sudden it gets declined because you're up against the limit. I can feel you. We're going to be talking a lot about inflation here in our city, in our province, in our country. We're also going to talk about the word greedflation which right now is before the government of Canada. Some of our great grocers, including Galen Weston, uh, are facing the music, if you will, about whether or not they are taking too much of your money and putting it into their pocket. We are just minutes away from uh, discussing this at length with Haroon Ali. He's a community organizer based out of Edmonton who started a petition calling for an investigation into Loblaws for said greedflation. But before we get to Mr. Ali, I just really quickly want to get to a little bit of audio here. Um, The testimony is happening as we speak. So we want to make sure that we can get this to you fresh off the press, as they say. Um, This one's just a real brief clip. But Galen Weston, of course, the the big dog with Loblaw, talking about the fact that... um, It's not just Canada who is facing some of these challenges. First, food inflation is affecting every country, not just us here in Canada. And I know it doesn't feel like it, but Canada has one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world. I'm going to skip to the third clip here that we've got, because in addition to that one, I want to get down to the brass tacks of it. I know we're not all driving around today with our, you know, our paper and pen. So I'm just going to try to bring this down to a simple common denominator before we get to Haroon. And and this is Mr. Weston talking about the fact um, that the math just doesn't add up to the accusations that they're facing. Third, for those who say grocers are profiteering, the math just doesn't add up. Since inflation took off 18 months ago, the cost of that $25 grocery basket has increased just under $4. During that same period, the grocer's profit increased by 15 cents. In other words, food prices have increased 25 times faster than profits. And at Loblaw, none of those profits came from higher food margins. Our retail prices have not risen faster than our costs. So no matter how many times you read it on Twitter, the idea that grocers are causing food inflation is not only false, it's impossible. So that is the messaging that is coming from Galen Weston. I'm going to bring on Haroon Ali, again, a community organizer based out of uh, Edmonton, who had a petition. He said he wanted to hear from Galen Weston. He wanted to hear from Loblaw and our major food suppliers as to what's going on with these numbers. So, Mr. Ali, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. You have just heard a couple of clips from Galen Weston. Let's talk about that. I mean, he's saying that the math and the accusations simply don't add up. Where do you stand on his thoughts today? Yeah, to be frank, the gaslighting from these large grocery store companies, as if we can't read their corporate statements, their profits are up. You know what I mean? So unless profits are being made out of thin air, which I don't frankly believe, I, I, I think that I think some folks are being disingenuous, you know what I mean? For for us, especially when we when when I crafted that petition, one of the goals was to hear from these folks. Uh, but also more or less that Parliament needs to open up their own investigation into this. This is a great first step into into doing that. They heard from grocers, they're continuing to hear from grocers as we speak. However, the gaslighting, the misinformation is just not adding up. So to be frank, I the one thing the one thing I do agree with him is that something's not adding up here. So it's time for Parliament to open up a parliamentary investigation, not just law laws, but all big five grocery CEOs. Because the more folks can, folks can read, you know, I mean, folks can see the everyday prices going up. And we're not just saying that it's just solely on supermarkets that are causing the food inflation. 
there are suppliers who have a responsibility in this as well, but it's largely the part of on uh, grocery stores. You know, one of the things that I got out of the first maybe 15 minutes of the testimony today was a lot of the fact that the focus is on food. But Mr. Weston in particular said, listen, we're not just food. We are also makeup. We are also camping equipment. We are so many more things than just food. So even though we're not making profit off of food, and again, I'm paraphrasing from Mr. Weston's testimony today, he's saying that the profits are coming from other sectors within his corporation. Do you buy that? That, though, I, I, see, I, I'm not going to say I don't buy that necessarily. What I am going to say, though, is that if they're charging more for prescriptions, and they're saying that they're making more money on prescriptions uh, and other things. That's just as bad. Food inflation is bad, but charging more for medicine and that type of stuff is not appropriate either. Um, more or less, now what we needed, to, uh, what we, what Parliament needs to do is they need to enact legislation. They need to change how the Competition Act is. The fact that they have such a large market control is the result of a Parliament that has failed to properly regulate them. They should not be able to merge and merge and merge into these large corporations that are able to sit at the table uh, for that. So for me, I think better can be achieved. I think that parliamentarians are being gaslit right now. And I agree with the Deputy Prime Minister that it's great to hear from the grocery CEOs, but more needs to be done from on, on the side of MPs. You know, one of the things that I noticed, and I appreciate your time for this, is we heard from Loblaw, we heard from Empire, but there's a couple of people that are not at the table today that I thought would be, and I'm a little surprised they weren't. We didn't hear from Walmart. We didn't hear from Amazon and Costco. Those are three really big players in Canada, and they're not even invited to this conversation. Yeah, I, I personally think they should be invited to this conversation. For us, I feel like a lot of people didn't understand what we were doing when we specifically named Loblaws. For me, I'm a political science uh, student, so one of the things we've learned is that the best way to make, any, uh, make your case is to use a case example. It's not We use Loblaws as an example because the profiteering is just so clear to everyday, everyday Canadians. But I agree that Loblaws, Amazon, Costco, they also have a role to play in this as well. The financials are just not adding up, and to be frank, you know, I mean, like we don't have the same information that Loblaws does. And I think it's time that I think Canadians are frustrated. I think they want to see the, the numbers behind things. Haroon, thank you for your time this afternoon and your insight. Thank you so much. A couple of days ago, I guess you'd say a week or so ago, everybody was marveling at the fact that one municipality came forward with a single-digit tax increase when it came to their properties. I mean, we've heard everything about Surrey, how at one point it was going to be 17 and a half, maybe 12, if they can use some of that money that they got from the government to help subsidize it. But, uh, you know, eyebrows raised on that. But Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, has been doing good things in that community for a number of years, so much so that in the last municipal election, he didn't run against anybody. They like him so much that he just got the old red carpet treatment and he just keeps on doing what he's doing. Mayor West, kind enough to join me this afternoon here on CKNW. Brad, good afternoon. Hey, Rob. How you doing? I'm okay. You know, it's interesting when you switch over from sports to news, you're looking at statistics of a different variety. But the <laughs> numbers just do not uh, work against you and what you're doing in Port Coquitlam. So I want to start with when you came out with the budget and you were able to get your, um, I guess you would say, the one that everybody's looking at right now, your property taxes and keep them low. You said you went line by line through your budget to make sure that you could help the taxpayers in Port Coquitlam. How did you do it? Well, I'm incredibly proud of what we've achieved in Port Coquitlam. Uh, If you're living in Port Coquitlam, 
you are paying on average about $1,200 less a year in property taxes than uh, other folks in Metro Vancouver. And that hasn't happened by accident or by magic. It's been a lot of hard work. And it is because we go through our budget painstakingly, line by line, uh, challenging assumptions, asking questions, looking for different ways to do things. And the result, I think, has been really positive for the residents of our community. And, you know, a couple of examples of how we do that. So, like every city, we have increasing demands uh, for various services and our department heads will come forward with requests for additional staff. Rather than just bringing out the old rubber stamp and saying, yeah, go ahead, let's just add on top of adding, we first look inward and we assess each department's resources and how they're allocated. We look to see whether there's positions that maybe were added in the city 20 or 30 years ago that could be uh, moved over to today's priorities. And that inward looking piece uh, has been a real big part of why we've been able to hold the line on taxes because we're using the resources we already have more efficiently and effectively and lining up with today's priorities and what people are telling us are important. The other key thing we do is we always have a mindset of respect for our taxpayer And when the city is able to achieve savings or efficiencies, and and many cities are able to do that, uh, there's a question that gets posed to us. What are you going to do with that money? What we do is always return it to our taxpayers because, quite frankly, it, it is their money. It's just that simple. So as an example, the city budgets every year how much money we think we're going to make from our investments. And every city does that. They have investments, they have uh, savings accounts, and they have to guess how much money they're going to make from those investments. And what we have found is, uh, in many instances, we actually make more money by a couple hundred thousand dollars a year than we had budgeted for. Now, rather than looking at that as, oh, that's free money, let's go spend it on a pet project, we say no. This is great, excellent news. Thank you, staff, for doing such a great job in, on our investments. Let's take that money and let's return it to our taxpayers in the form of low property tax rates. So that's just some of the things that we do, uh, but it is really a team effort, and I'm exceptionally proud of the work that we've done in our city. And now the government, the provincial government, ended up giving each community a set amount of money because they had a little bit of overflow on their end. What do you plan on doing Uh, with the money that you're going to receive from the provincial government? We're going to receive about $9.4 million, I understand. And so uh, first thing is we want to hear from our community, as we always do, about what's important to them. Because we're in such a strong financial position, we don't need to use that money to try and uh, reduce taxes. Our our taxes are already, already very reasonable the second lowest out of the 21 cities in Metro Vancouver. So what we're going to do, I think, is look to continue our focus on the core responsibilities of the municipality, the things that people actually send their tax dollars to City Hall for, and that's things like great athletic fields and facilities and amenities, clean parks, excellent playgrounds for kids and families to gather, uh, roads that don't have massive potholes that can swallow your car, mm. uh, you know, snow removal, 
I think we've got the best snow removal in Metro Vancouver. And again, you know, it's why I'm so proud of what we've been able to do with our budget, because we haven't sacrificed on uh, on our services, Rob. We're, you know, we built a brand new state-of-the-art modern community center that's got three rinks and a swimming pool and a fitness center and a senior center and a library and a youth center and basketball courts and more and more. Like, we're not only able to deliver fiscal responsibility that saves our local residents money, we're also investing in the things that communities should have and that cities should be delivering. My final question for you, and I don't want to put you in a bad spot with some of the mayors throughout the Lower Mainland, but when you hear the potential of them using their found money, quote unquote, towards things that would, you know, simply bring taxes down, that that wasn't what it was really meant for, at least intended for. Is that something that raised your eyebrows? Well, a little bit, because I think initially what I heard from the provincial government was that the money was to be used for capital projects, for for roads and for parks and playgrounds and rec centres, like I was just talking about. Um, now, I'm not the mayor of other cities, and I don't know the ins and outs of their situation, so I'm not going to pass judgment. I can understand that if I was staring down a very large property tax increase like they are in some cities, and the province comes along and says, here's a whack of money, mm-hmm. uh, the temptation would be very strong, and I can understand the desire to get that property tax rate low. Um, I- I'm, I'm just pleased that we're in the position we are because we're going to be able to take that money and put it to use to deliver improvements that people are going to be able to see and feel and and use. And I think at the end of the day, that's what I've always believed. People don't object to paying taxes. They want to know what they're getting for it, though. And they want to know that it's something that's going to make their life better. It's going to improve the the quality of their community um, and be good for everyone in the city. And so I think that's the key thing to stay focused on. I appreciate your time today. I know you're a busy guy. So thank you for making some time for me this afternoon. Really appreciate you having me on. I have a admission. I watch far too much TV, like way too much TV. Probably could go out, walk my dog, probably could hang out with a few more family members. But you know what? I usually end up watching TV with my family. And every once in a while, I'll get channel surfing, and I will find a show where I sit back and I'm like, I can get with this one. And I'm a binge guy, too. Like, I don't just watch one. I'll watch five. And damn it, if it's on Netflix, I can find myself watching a whole season or two. (laughs) It's a problem, isn't it? But at the same time, when you find a good one, you know you got to do this. So this is cool for me. I, this is the part of radio that I like doing. When I cross paths with somebody who has found uh, their way onto a show that I happen to enjoy as well. From Lost Car Rescue of the History Channel, Jessica James, kind enough to join me today. Jessica, good afternoon. Hello there. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for making me a part of your day. I just wanted to say, first and foremost, a fan. Secondly, I wanted to talk about how you got into the world of avionics before we get into anything to deal with finding and and resuscitating lost cars. (laughs) Well, you know what? I'm very fortunate that it started at a very young age. My first flight was actually at six months with uh, both of my parents. My uh, dad... Um, has a pilot's license, and we went on many fond uh, family trips when I was young. 
And that's probably where the flying bug started. It also probably didn't help that I grew up in a northern community that was once the BC float plane capital, Nimple Lake, BC, and very fortunate that I grew up with surrounded by float planes. And after I graduated high school, it just kind of made sense to start with my private pilot's license. And I fell in love with it and continued on with my commercial. Where was the first time that they put you in the cockpit and said, you're in control, it's all you now? (laughs) Well, ironically enough, one of my um, first memories as a kid, and I was very young, was I actually hated to sit in the front. And I was terrified of it, and I have no idea why. And there was one flight that was a very short flight, and my dad said, you're going in the front this time. Um, And then after, it's just funny to look back on it now that I... um, get to fly aircraft that I was once afraid to sit in the front. So, <laughs> Do you find that still an industry? Um, and I, I know you've gone on to get your licensing and, and onward into a number of different fields. Do you find that that's an industry where there's still a little bit of a stigma when it comes to a woman trying to take on a career as a pilot? Or do you find that now there's no more stigmas that it is even Stephen straight across the board? Unfortunately, there is still um, stigmas in this industry. Um, it's it's slowly changing for the for the best, but there are definitely battles as a female in this industry that we have to um, deal with when joining this industry. Without getting too detailed, what are some of the challenges that are still faced? You know, what? I think it's just um, I think it starts at a young age, and I'll I'll make it quick. But a very close friend of mine who is also a commercial pilot, her little one who's five years old. Um, went to school and was very excited to report to her classmates that her mom's a pilot. And they told her that she was lying because that can't be true because only daddies can be pilots. Mm. So I think it still starts, it starts at a young age and it's just, we don't see females sitting in that seat. You know, there's, we're still 6% um, for females in the industry. And I think it's just the knowledge of knowing that, you know what, females can also do this job as well. Well, I love that people get to see you on television because I think that's a big piece of the puzzle is just being able to visualize that. And now all of a sudden you find yourself on the History Channel with a show called Lost Car Rescue. Now, these are my kind of shows. This is I think it's a part of my jam is because I love restoration and I love people that scour, you know, these unique parts of Canada and North America to find these hidden gems. Um, can you, for maybe somebody that hasn't uh, seen your show, give them a basic synopsis of why this is such a cool experience for you? Well, firstly, we get to go to some pretty amazing spots in Canada, um, places that I would have never have, well, didn't even know of prior to the show or um, even knew about, but we get to go. So there's a team of five of us and there's myself who flies a 1948 Stinson. Mm-hmm. And then sitting beside me is Matt, who is our, our leader of our group. We also have a very knowledgeable body man who's been in the industry since he was about 14 years old. And he's uh, in his late sixties now. And his name is Dave. And then we have two people that recover our um, vehicles that we find, and that is Lee and Steve. And so there's a group of five of us. We travel all across Canada, and we go and we find old, forgotten vehicles, and we find new homes from them. 
I love the backstories as well. That to me is just as important as the recovery and everything that you do with it. It's just getting able, you know, you tell the stories of these communities and really shine light on some parts of this country that don't get a lot of light shone on them. And I would assume coming from a small town, that's kind of a big deal for you as well. It's such a big deal. Honestly, it gets me so excited. I feel so grateful getting to hear people's stories and then even better getting the opportunity to tell their stories to the world. So it's it's amazing and it sheds some light on small communities that probably aren't known in Canada. And um, yeah, just sharing the history and learning those stories about the cars and the people is makes it uh, a dream job. And correct me if I'm wrong, before I let you go, your dad made one of your first airplanes for you. Yes. I, <laughs> ah, it's true. Okay, good. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> not a true plane, but it was a cardboard uh, cutout box. And I remember it had a little steering wheel and I had my own eye dent. And at a very young age, I was taught the phonetic alphabet. So it definitely started at a very young age. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> I won't ask because I don't know. But that sounds, it sounds like you were supported. And I guess in that plane, you got to sit in the front and the back, right? That's true, yes. (laughs) Didn't get many miles on it, but uh, a lot of good memories. Well, I'll tell you what, just making a few minutes of time for me today is such a big deal. Jessica, continued success, and thank you for being one of those 6% that are really paving the way for hopefully some young women that uh, say, you know what, I'm going to do that as well. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. You know, one of the things with two teenage kids that I've had to deal with is what is on their phone? What's on their iPad? What are the things? And I'm not just talking about the worst of the worst, but one thing that continues to evolve is gaming and gambling and the crossing of those two. And uh, as a parent, you do the best that you can. You try to inform, you try to educate, and you try to make sure that they steer clear of some of those pitfalls. But the reality is, is with things like Twitch and all these different websites where you can live stream and you can engage with others, there is always going to be a risk. So to speak to that risk and a few other things as well, Dr. Luke Clark, who's from the, the uh, he's a director at the Center for Gambling Research at UBC. Dr. Clark, good afternoon. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. And in preparation for this uh, interview, I was just assuming we'd be talking about Twitch. But then I went down the rabbit hole of some of the seminars that you've been a part of, and it covered everything right through to bipolar disorder. So let's start at the surface level and kind of delve in, if you'd be so kind. Let's talk about just the generalities of the fact that these kids right now, or people of all ages, can still find ways to gamble and uh, get enticed by certain websites. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, we've been presenting at the uh, the VCLC's New Horizons in Responsible Gambling Conference this week. And the, the session that we had yesterday was on emerging forms of gambling. You know, the, the worlds of uh, video gaming and gambling are moving sort of ever closer together. And, you know, what, one particular example of that uh, that we have new data on is uh, around uh, video game loot boxes. Mm. Um, so, uh, again, and a lot of listeners may not, may not be familiar with this term uh, ju- just yet. These, they've been around for a few years, but these are a loot boxes, are a sort of mystery box inside a video game. It, it delivers a, a randomized prize maybe a weapon or a character, and some of the prizes are very rare and valuable. Um, And the shift that we've been seeing in the gaming industry is towards 
kind of monetizing that feature. So gamers can can buy loot boxes as a as a form of in-game payment, and and that means that they can. Uh, you know, overspend or spend more than they intended on those items and, and where the links with gambling come in. I know that Twitch in particular, if you go to their website, they'll talk about how they're trying to stay up on their policies and are doing their best that they can to prohibit streaming to certain sites that have everything from gambling to, you know, your aforementioned loot boxes. But the reality is, is this just continues to evolve. How do you police it? How do you try to contain the evolution of, of what we're now starting to see more common, out, more common than ever before? Yeah, so Twitch there, that's, a, that's a, another example of this. I suppose in our research, I see these things as, as kind of separate, that um, the streaming platforms uh, like Twitch or you know, YouTube as, as well, uh, you know, traditionally there for watching video gaming. Now there's a big element of gambling streams on Twitch. Now these are free to watch, um, and you know, if the if the streamer wins on a gambling stream, the viewer doesn't doesn't win anything. So it's it's effectively spectating. But again, the concerns there are, are similar. You know, we've got concerns about underage um, youth. You know, un- under the age to gamble can be exposed to gambling through through um, through streams. Uh, but but then the other part of that is, you know, what about uh, adults who are gambling, maybe people who are trying to cut back or or, or recover from gambling problems, um, and uh, you know this um, this sort of digital uh, ecosystem that they're in, gambling is kind of all around them. One of the first times that I got involved in gambling, and it was a problem early on in my twenties, I would even say my late teens, was sports gambling and university. And the fact is, every weekend there are games, uh, you know, Friday was high school, Saturday was college, Sunday was for the pros. And you found yourself all of a sudden looking to your tuition or looking to loans or bursaries and ways that you never thought you would have to utilize money. But the reality is, is this, I guess you would call it age range, is still struggling with it. And now, even if you turn on the old hockey game, at least one of those commercials during a commercial break is a gambling site. Well, I, I've been studying um, gambling and, um, and, and gambling harm for uh, 15, 20, 20 years now. And um, the, the, the kind of risk factors that you talk about, about there, yeah, like younger age, you know, younger adulthood, but also a lot of um, teenage gambling. Uh, we also know that gambling problems tend to skew more towards men. And with, um, you know, student loans or, you know, access to, to funds is a, a central issue uh, as, as people's gambling kind of spirals out of control. Um, the, the, the sports betting sector also very fast moving, of course, in, in Canada over the last couple of years with the, um, uh, the uh, move towards single event sports betting. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, another uh, space to watch. This has been a, a very fast-moving area over the last few years. You talk about um, fast-moving areas. Is there something you see on the horizon, something that maybe if we could nip it in the bud a little ahead of time might prevent the next big thing from happening? Well, uh, like I, I think that gets, yeah, like that gets at a kind of regulatory question where the, the video game sector you know is 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 largely kind of self-regulated and 
you know, age restrictions within, within, you know, gambling, like getting into a casino are very strictly enforced, but that's, you know, it's much more loose around video gaming, more kind of age recommendation. Dr. Clark, I don't mean to cut you off. I think what I meant was I just look at the future of AI. And I think that for me oh. is the great variable right now. And I, I should have led with that question. I apologize. But, uh, you know, you look at things that are coming on the horizon. AI just seems to be progressing at almost a, a breakneck speed. And I wondered if that would somehow prove, you know, troublesome for somebody that researches gambling. Oh, it certainly does. And I would see that particularly, uh, you know, in relation to, to marketing and promotions and how those can can be directed more towards the kind of target groups through um, AI technologies. So, you know, rather than advertising on, on, on TV and, you know, anyone who watches uh, sports on TV sees those adverts that are kind of countrywide or province-wide at the moment, but AI through social media, um, through, uh, you know, particular having the, the app on the phone, it, it gives a lot more ways to contact uh, that person with marketing and, um, and promotion. Yeah, it's such an interesting conversation. Dr. Clark, I wish we had much more time than this, but I'm sure we'll have you back and thank you for your time this afternoon. Great. Thanks, Rob. It is the saddest part of the movie, Up. If you've never seen it, I won't spoil it for you, but let's just say there's a moment in time where there's this instrumental song that really tugs at your heartstrings, but there's no words to it, hence the term instrumental. But a local musician by the name of Emily Moore decided, you know what, I am going to put words to this song. And uh, in her own words, she says, I may have just made the saddest song in the world even sadder. But boy, has it struck a chord with a lot of people online that has gone viral in a very, very big way to the tune of half a million downloads in the last couple of days. Emily Moore from Vancouver joins me here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Emily, good afternoon. Hi, how's it going? It is going great. And I have to say, having just listened to your song, it won't be the last time that I listen to it. But I want to walk through a couple of different ways that you got to this moment, because going viral is one thing. But you got to do something cool in 2023 to capture the minds and ears of so many viewers and listeners. What was the thought when you heard this instrumental that made you say, you know what, I'm going to try to put words to this song? Mm-hmm. Well, my grandma actually passed away from COVID in 2020. Um, she was one of the first people to pass away in North America. And um, I was really grieving the loss of her life. And I was watching the movie Up, and it just really reminded me of her. And so I decided I wanted to write lyrics over the song, um, and I shared it on TikTok. And it just resonated so deeply with so many people because so many people were grieving throughout COVID and then also just grieving the loss of anyone in their lives um and so it just became something so much bigger than me that i could share with so many people um who are feeling really alone in their grief i think a lot of people that have written have always said okay well i've got one part of it down i've got the song but sure enough i got to put a video together to go with it you went to extraordinary heights to find a way to do something really beautiful walk me through finding somebody that was going to allow you to do this video in a hot air balloon Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was actually in California and um, I was calling around to different balloon companies seeing if anyone would let me put the piano and the mic that I wanted to perform with in the basket. I called a bunch of companies, so many people were saying no, and then finally I stumbled upon a company called Magic Magical Adventure Balloon Rides. Um, 
And the man named Denny, who flew me in the balloon, he actually had already heard the song, which is so incredible to me um, because he had experienced some loss of his own. And so he immediately jumped at the opportunity because he saw what I was trying to do. And he also just really believed in the song and and me. And so um, it was just such a beautiful coincidence. And um, yeah, he agreed to do it. I just want to play a real quick clip of Denny describing it from his perspective. Bear with me. Many people, Mm -hmm. we've had some personal tragedy in our life. My son and my wife are big fanatics of YouTube. She found the song and listened to it and told me about it. When you were putting the pictures on the wall, it just felt very emotional for our family. So it made it sort of like kismet that you would call us and tell us about this project. Isn't that amazing that somewhere, Mm -hmm. if you knock on enough doors, somebody will finally answer and resonate with what you're doing. So the song, obviously from the movie Up, it is one Mm -hmm. of those things that resonated with you. Why do you think it's connected with so many people beyond COVID? Because it's a song that had never had words to it until you put them to it. Yeah, well, I think so many people just love that movie. It's such a touching movie, and that specific scene that that song is in is so, so powerful um, just in terms of loss. And then I think, you know, so many people experience grief in their lives, and, and they just need something, I think, to hold on to, to remember their loved ones by and to feel a little less alone. And I think people just really resonated with this feeling like someone understands my grief, someone put words to the grief that I was feeling, and and now I feel like I have maybe a bit more um, of a community in that. And I think it's so isolating to grieve by yourself. And so just to have a community on TikTok or anywhere um, where you feel understood is just so powerful. On your YouTube page, your header says, subscribe for free heartbreak. <laughs> I, 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 I smirk. I don't laugh. I smirk just because it's, it's perfectly said. But there's going to be a <laughs> lot of people listening to this that are going to want to hear your song and maybe even more from you. Where can they find you? Mm-hmm. They can find me on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube. I'm on TikTok as well, where it all began. Um, so you can find me at Emily Moore on all of those platforms. And my name is spelled with two E's at the end instead of a Y. So <laughs> I got you. You beat me to it. It was my next thing. I got oh, a sneak of suspicion things are going to change for you pretty quick because you didn't just do the song justice. I think you elevated it. You took it to a whole new level. And Emily, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you so, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Emily Moore, local artist, songwriter from right here in Vancouver. Again, all social media platforms at Emily Moore, which is E-M-I-L-E-E Moore, M-O-O-R-E. And I definitely uh, think it is worth your investigation as to uh, what it sounds like. And and give her some likes, give her some follows, subscribe to her channel, and uh, let's try to help this local artist who uh, I think caught a little lightning in a bottle with this song. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.